Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Everybody, welcome back to another episode of Mamba Moments. We have a very special guest in the house today, Mark Medina, one of my favorite writers of all time. Uh, had a great relationship with Kobe. Phenomenal job interviewing him, getting to know him, asking press conference questions, and covered Kobe a lot during the final seasons. And is now a writer and reporter for the NBA for USA Today. Uh, Mark, you did the last sit-down interview with Kobe Bryant. And that is incredible. How does that feel knowing that? And what is your main takeaway from that interview now? Well, thanks for the kind words, first of all, but uh, very conflicted. I I think it goes without saying, you don't wish that to be the final interview. Um, You know, I think looking back on that, uh, that gave me a lot of clarity on what his you know, next chapter was what his ambitions were and tragically how it fell short. But in t- at the time, the interview was all about a larger story I was putting together about how he's made this, you know, really seamless transition from his accomplished NBA career to what he's doing on a number of fronts with his storytelling ventures, with Granity, you know, doing different uh, projects with detail with ESPN, uh, coaching his daughter Gianna. Uh, on the AAU circuit. So at the time, the interview was really cool. It was uh, it was kind of a trip down that number lane. I think both of us shared some nostalgia for reconnecting, uh, but it was also inspiring to see him in a, in a new light. But then the context of it obviously completely changed nine days later when he and Gianna were among nine people who died in a helicopter crash. So it's uh, it's painful to think back on that. For sure, for sure. And I really noticed that you brought out that love of life in Kobe and you really were able to see how much he was enjoying life. As you covered Kobe in his final years, what do you think allowed him to transition into retirement and really loving life and what he was doing so successfully? Well, it's, it was a blessing and a curse. I, I had talked with Kobe a few years before that final interview, uh, I think one year removed from the NBA. And he was saying at the time after, you know, Dear Basketball, the, uh, the short film came out, that the fact that he had the Achilles injury and then the knee injury and the shoulder injury, that gave him a lot of time to think about Uh, just his basketball mortality and what's next. And so that gave him also time to brainstorm. That also influenced uh, how he executed that Showtime documentary, where initially it was going to be about everyone talking about him as well as himself. But then he wanted to make it completely first person. So he ditched the project and went to plan B. Um, I think another thing, I remember talking with the longtime Lakers trainer, Gary Vitti during Kobe's final season and he had made the remarks to Kobe along the lines of look um, if you should be grateful that you're in a losing season like the basketball gods did this to you uh, because if you were competing for a championship you want to be warm and cuddly and thinking about post-career you'd be trying to bite someone's head off so I think (laughs) as much as Kobe wanted to win 
every single game. The fact that the final years were a lost cause and his last year itself was more about his farewell. I think that mentally allowed him to know what the next step is because he knew that physically there's really not much he can do. Absolutely. No, that makes a ton of sense. And Kobe was obviously someone who was really in control and liked to be in control. How do you think he was able in those final seasons, you know, because you were in the press conference and had such unique insight to just accept that his body was declining and there was nothing he could do about it. And he had to sort of just ride it out. Well, I think you can look at it in two ways. Uh, he, he didn't necessarily accept that his body was declining because he okay. still wanted to be able to play. So he was working around the clock to be able to make sure that his body was functional enough to at least step on the court. But I think to your point, what he was accepting is this isn't going to be the same kind of performances that he was yeah. showing during his, uh, the prime of his career. So I think he had shot a career low in 37, 39% range. Uh, the fact that they were losing a lot of games, I think that's what he came to accept. But uh, because the the end game of winning a title was such a lost cause, it was very clear that he wanted to pivot into getting those small victories in terms of, hey, being able to be on the floor uh, for most of the season and avoid a major injury, having those moments here or there where you see a, a vintage performance of his. Yeah. Um, you know, soaking in the nostalgia, reflecting on his time in the NBA. You know, part of it was that. Part of it was, uh, you know, him shaping and fine-tuning a little bit of his narrative and legacy. And then I think the last part was trying to do what he can to develop the young guys. And I think that last part came with mixed results. And some of it was Kobe's undoing some of it wasn't I, I think that he came into the season wanting to be a guy that's mentoring the young guys and reducing his workload and he certainly mentored the guys but clearly he was still taking the majority of the shots a lot of the fans were coming to see him play because it's his final games so it, it wasn't as quite of a, of a smooth uh, transition that the Lakers had hoped I think in Kobe's mind he felt for the most part that a, even with him not being fully functional, he's still the better option. But number two, I think that there had gotten to be more growing frustration from himself, the Lakers coach Byron Scott and some of the other veterans that the young players weren't doing enough, you know, on their, on their own initiative to put in that work. And so I think because of that, Kobe got a, a little frustrated during that final season. Absolutely. No, that makes a lot of sense. And again, Mark did a phenomenal job covering that whole season. I was tuning in on the Bleacher Report news feed to see all of the articles come up. Los Angeles Daily News, OC Register, great interviews. And so back to uh, your last interview with Kobe, you talked to him about his English teacher. And his relationship with his English teacher is a fascinating one and helped him with storytelling. Can you elaborate a little bit on Kobe's relationship with his English teacher and how that translated into the later life Kobe Bryant that went on to win an Oscar? Yeah, well, Kobe's Eng English teacher, Shane Mastriano, she uh, was an English teacher at Lower Marion High School, which Kobe attended. And even before 
Kobe's interest in the storytelling realm, you may recall he did a Players Tribune article uh, after breaking Michael Jordan's record uh, for you know most points uh, scored during your NBA career, and he had insisted that he wrote that article. No one ghost read it, and he he gave a lot of credit to Gene Mastriano for being able to pull that off in such a tight window because during these English classes, one of her exercises that she did is they wanted, she wanted the, the students to have to write on a prompt where they'd be timed, they'd be, they'd be given the subject matter, but then they'd be given a timed prompt. And so you're getting used to the idea of knowing how to write on deadline and get your creative juices flowing. But one thing that uh, Jane Mastriano also stresses, once the buzzer sounds off, if you need a few extra moments or a minute or two to finish your thoughts, just do it. Don't let that kind of constrain yourself. And so I think with that, Kobe has really credited her for tapping into his creativity and his creative mind. Wow. And also um, just how to work in you know, a deadline situation. It's not the same thing for him as it is on the basketball court when it's crunch time and the clock's yeah. running down, but it's you know, kind of a similar idea. Um, but I, I know talking with Jane, uh, she thinks the world of Kobe. She thought he was a really great wow. student. And one of the things that was always a lasting memory for her is that she had the students um, talk to the kindergarten class about telling a story. And she was so enamored with how Kobe was able to tell a story to the kindergartners um, with a lot of emotion, a lot of good storytelling uh, techniques, and they were enamored with it. And, and the story, the Cliff Notes, was this kid was refusing to clean his room. Um, you know, his mom's nagging on him, hey, stop cleaning your, you know, stop having your room be messy. And so eventually, he was just putting all the dirty clothes and the toys underneath his bed in the closet. And what wound up happening is all that stuff turned into monsters and they ganged up on him in the middle of the night. So that was like a story to the kids. You should clean your room. And what's so such an interesting twist with this is uh, when I was talking with Jane Mastriano, she was, you know, going chapter and verse on just this whole anecdote, how well thought out it was. Wow. And when I talked with Kobe about it, he said, you know what? I'll be honest with you. I, I winged it entirely. I, <laughs> I forgot about the homework assignment. We go into class and she reminds us, hey, today is the day you have to talk to kindergartners. And so she, when he's making the trip from leaving the classroom down the hallway, his mind's racing, oh, I got to come up with something. <laughs> I can't help but laugh and said, does Jane yeah. know about this? And he's like, he does, she does now. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's funny. The other, the other interesting angle with, with her is that um, you would think her, uh, Jane being an English teacher, a high school teacher, that she would be one of the proponents to Kobe about going to college when he was at Lower Marion and weighing his MBA future. And normally she would have said that, but um, she was so convinced of not only Kobe's talent, but his drive and ambition and well thought out plan to make it work that she actually encouraged him. You're doing the right thing, jumping wow. from the high school to the MBA. And she wow. had told faculty members, Kobe's making the right choice because at that time, 
I mean, it's not even just a debate in the NBA world of, hey, should this guy jump from high school to pro? Uh, I think in his school, people were feeling conflicted because even though they knew his talent, I think from just an educational standpoint and a growth standpoint, um, there were some concerns. And look, as you know, Kobe didn't have the most perfect career. He had his ups and downs and issues with teammates and personal problems. Um, so I think there is some school of thought that maybe college would have helped him with those transition stages. But I think from a talent level and the fact that he had thought out how he's going to get from point A to point B, he obviously proved that he was ready for that. And, and Jane was one of the very first few people that had a lot of confidence that Kobe could pull that off. That's unbelievable. That's so cool. Yeah, I highly recommend everyone check out that USA Today interview that Mark did. And the story about the laundry monster in the English class is absolutely hilarious. And Kobe said he winged it. Uh, you can definitely see that Mark enjoyed that in the interview. But let me take you down a little bit of a trip down memory lane here, Mark. What was your first time meeting Kobe and what stuck out to you from that? Well, I think there are different stages. I mean, my first time seeing Kobe, I was at a practice. Uh, there were a lot of media members. At that time, I was an entry-level reporter at the LA Times, um, and this was during the 2009 NBA Finals. So, um, you know, I got a question. He answered it. Everything was fine. But there wasn't, like, any personal introduction. I was one of many anonymous faces in a large group of people. So I almost kind of feel like that doesn't count. My first time actually having a conversation meeting with him was maybe a few, uh, a week or two into my new gig as the Lakers blogger with the LA Times. So this was in the middle of the 2009-10 season. And after uh, the practice, uh, you know, group availability ended and media members dispersed, I you know, made eye contact him and just introduced myself. Um, and he took the time to shake my hand. But I, you know, at that point, he doesn't know who I am. I don't have any credentials. I'm just trying to, you know, make the most of this opportunity. And I, I think his words were really interesting. He was very gracious. And he said, hey, you know, wish you well, best of luck with everything. But, you know, I, I don't want to say the tone was condescending, but it was very much of, hey, like, let's see what you do with it sort of thing. So, um, that's kind of how Kobe always was. I mean, he has a lot of, uh, high expectations for everyone, uh, his teammates himself, you know, even, even media members, you know, and I think for, for us, I mean, he's not, uh, you know, he doesn't really respect people that, you know, are abrasive or try to, you know, catch them with a gotcha quote, but he also doesn't really respect people that suck up to him either. So, I mean, I think that he appreciated media members that did their homework, you know, it was fair to him, but also stood up to them. And, you know, that was a process, but it was something I learned through and wasn't always the best at it, but uh, certainly made improvements. And uh, it was great covering him those last seven and a half uh, seasons of his. And it continued to grow to get to the point where, you know, there was a working relationship where, you know, he was open to, to doing this kind of interview um, on his post MBA career. Absolutely. No, definitely. You could see that relationship grow over time. And so I would love to know, do you have any favorite moments or moments that really stick out from covering Kobe? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of them, but I, I to this day, um, 
the favorite moment's never going to be the final interview because of what it meant. So like, it's going to be the most memorable moment, but I, I, I've gotten to the point in my career. I don't rewatch video interviews or podcasts because it's one of those things where you feel like you just self critique too much. But even that, like to this day, I've never watched or re-listened to the interview because it's just, it would be painful. Um, so I think my favorite memories are more of um, getting to know him through a different lens, uh, making a trip to Philadelphia for a few days in the middle of the 2013-14 season. At that point, he still had some years left in his career, but we knew it was more on the tail end. So I, I connected with people at Lower Marion, including Jane Mastriano, about what his legacy has been at Lower Marion. And, you know, to this day, um, well, you know, before his passing, he had been in touch a lot with his English teacher and his high school coach, Greg Downer, and one of his teammates that served as the school spokesperson, Doug Young, and, and other former teammates, um, not on a day-to-day basis, but enough that when you see him, it's like you're hitting the ground running and, and you pick up where you left off. And so I felt that that was cool to see people that really knew him from the beginning and also feel like they have an authentic attachment to him. And that really helped not only, you know, with the story of telling cool anecdotes about his time at Lower Marion, but I think it really helped down the line and gain a better understanding of, of what Kobe is all about. Absolutely. That's awesome. And I'll share very quickly that one of my favorite moments with you and Kobe is 2015 Atlanta Hawks press conference when uh, he talked about playing you one on one in a summertime game. So that was cool. And I, I really enjoyed that Kobe was always willing to open up with you. You could really tell that you earned that trust with him over time. And that was great to see. So I'll wrap up with one final question here, Mark. And when you look back on the whole Kobe Bryant experience of covering him, of knowing him the way you did, what is really going to stick out to you as far as Kobe's impact on you and just how you remember Kobe Bryant, the player and the person? Well, I think for Kobe, he represented um, for a lot of people who covered him uh, extensively, including myself as I think someone that really showed kind of, the blessing and the curse of what it's like to cover a high profile athlete. I, I mean, uh, as much as, you know, I enjoyed covering him earlier in his career when I wasn't there, I mean, he was known to be very difficult with media members, you know, during his initial stages of just trying to foot, find his foot in the league, his issues with Shaq, his legal situation with, with Colorado, um, you know, the, the, demands that he made with the trade in the organization. And there was a lot of times he was moody and difficult. And when I started covering him, there were still times that he was moody and difficult. But I think as time passed on, uh, he was able to shed a lot of that and show the other side of his personality where he's very curious. Um, there is a humanity to him. I think there's a demand for excellence. And so I think with that, it's not like any interactions with him were always warm and fuzzy. A lot of times it's antagonistic and sarcastic, but I think what was cool with all that is he was always answerable uh, and he always respected the people that, you know, went back and forth with that and, and did their homework and, you know, stood up for another day. And 
I don't want to over-dramatize it. Most of the experiences were good, but there were times where maybe he'd make fun of a question because rightfully so I didn't word it correctly or just whatever. And it's, it's not that big of a deal. Like don't take it personally and, and use it to get better. And at the same time, you know, you could turn the tables around where, you know, if you need to press them on something, you got to do your job. And so I think that's, that's what it's all about. And, uh, it's, it's a really cool, I, I think in our field, kind of a, a learning experience of how to, to navigate that tight rope of fostering a business relationship, uh, but also knowing that you got a job to do. Absolutely. That's awesome. And Mark, before you go here and I give my final thank you, um, where can we find you? You know, I work at USA Today, so we got a website, usatoday.com. We still deliver the paper, so there's always the print edition if you want to subscribe there. Uh, my social media handles, Mark, Mark G underscore Medina on Twitter, so that's M-A-R-K-G underscore M-E-D-I-N-A. And Instagram is Medina Syracuse, M-E-D-I-N-A, S-Y-R-A-C-U-S-E. That's awesome. Mark, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for all the incredible Kobe coverage over the years and that really special final interview. I recommend everyone check out Mamba Forever, Mamba out. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.